Stoics just took it for granted that it was the individual himself or herself who was the sole arbiter of what that decision should be. And that, I think, is the point of principle that underlies the idea that nobody has the right to stop somebody from taking their life if they want to. You're listening to episode 56 of the National Secular Society podcast produced by Emma Park. In the House of Lords, a private member's bill to legalise assisted dying to some extent was introduced on the 26th of May this year and is likely to have its second reading in the present session of Parliament. Much of the opposition to the legalisation of assisted dying is due to religious groups. The NSS is keen to ensure, however, that decisions about assisted dying are made on the basis of medical ethics and the principle of patient autonomy. This podcast will explore different views on how and why the law on assisted dying might be reformed and the opposition which such reform has faced. I will be joined by two guests with particular insight into this topic. My first guest, Molly Meacher, Baroness Meacher, is a crossbencher in the House of Lords, President of the Haemophilia Society and co-chair of the All-Party Parliamentary Group for Drug Policy Reform. It was Molly who introduced the Assisted Dying Bill into the Lords. She is chair for the campaign group Dignity in Dying, which supports assisted dying for terminally ill, mentally competent adults with six months or fewer to live. This time restriction forms a crucial part of her bill. My second guest is Professor Anthony Grayling, or AC Grayling as he's usually known. Anthony Grayling is a philosopher, the master of the New College of the Humanities, and a former professor of philosophy at Birkbeck College, University of London. He is a patron of Dignity in Dying, as well as of another campaign group, My Death, My Decision. My Death, My Decision wants to extend the right to assisted dying to those who are, to quote their website, either terminally ill, suffering from a severe and incurable condition, or suffering from a severe degenerative condition. Anthony himself, as an independent-minded philosopher, has argued that the right to assisted dying should potentially be extended far beyond the six-month limit advocated by dignity. Molly Meacher, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure. You were the one who introduced um, the, the present assisted dying bill um, at the House of, into the House of Lords in May, mm-hmm. and it's now hopefully going to have its second reading soon. Is there any update on when the second reading will be? Well, well I haven't actually asked because I wanted it deferred from September to October, and I, I feel as soon as we go back next Monday, I'll ask them, and I'm sure they'll give me the date. So mm-hmm. that's when we'll know. Great. So on to the bill itself. What is the purpose of this bill? Its purpose is to prevent terrible suffering of dying people in those last weeks leading up to their death. We're talking about a small minority of people. Most of us can have a reasonable or let's say acceptable death uh, if we have really high quality um, palliative care. And of course, we are passionate believers in high quality palliative care. Our total concern is, is the reduction or ideal elimination of severe and unbearable suffering. And you're speaking here as the chair of Dignity in Dying. Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's where we stand. Great. And so what is the story behind how this bill in its current form came to be drafted? Uh, Well, to be straightforward about it, this very almost identical text of a bill was introduced by uh, Lord Charlie Faulkner um, about six years ago, I think. And uh, we felt that there had been major changes in attitudes to assisted dying over these recent years uh, with a huge shift, uh, for example, on the part of doctors who, you know, six, seven, eight years ago, were 
quite clearly against uh, legalising assisted dying. Now we have um, a majority of doctors broadly supporting um, their royal colleges, um, ending their opposition to assisted dying, and about uh, 50% of doctors um, themselves would like it, would like to see it legalised. So that is a that is a massive shift, and there's also been a very considerable shift in towards favouring assisted dying on the part of MPs from really quite a low level 15 years ago to something like parity now. So it seemed the right time to uh, raise this issue again in Parliament, and therefore I put in for a private member's bill, and it was drawn number seven, and therefore here we are. This is a private member's bill, and I should be introducing it hopefully in October. Why do you think there's been such a big shift in recent years, in very recent years, in fact? Well, uh, there are probably several reasons. I personally think that the uh, campaign by Dignity and Dying, the organisation that I happen to chair, and I don't take any credit for myself, but I do think Sarah Wooten, the uh, director of Dignity and Dying, and her team are outstanding. And we've had just one horrible case of people suffering before they die after another. And the team have tried to clarify what that suffering is like um, through the media. The media have been a huge, huge help in this. Um, we had some, someone called Noel, but uh, Noel Conway, who suffered with motor neuron disease, and he took his case to the High Court, supported by Dignity in Dying, um, asking for the right to an assisted death on the basis that denying him that right was a breach of his human rights. And the, it, this went all the way to the Supreme Court, who decided that this was a matter for Parliament, that, that the court shouldn't decide a matter of this kind. I, I would question that, actually. In Canada, it was, it was the courts that decided that this was a, a human right and uh, asked the Parliament to put through the law, which they did. Um, in fact, it's a rather broader law than we want, but but you know the basic principle was that the courts did drive it, in fact. Why, why do you think the percentage of doctors in favour is lower than that of the general population? Are they worried about being sued? It's, it is interesting, isn't it? I think they're probably a little bit paternalistic, a lot of them, particularly people in palliative care. They want to take the decisions for their dying people. And, and the idea that you hand that decision to the patient and it's the patient who decides, uh, is my suffering unbearable? Do I want an assisted death? Um, you know, that transfer of power from the doctor to, to the patient, um, it, it, that transfer has gone a long way, actually, in medicine over the past 20 years, I would say. Mm. Um, but this is very much a sort of total transfer of power, if you like. You know, the patient really does decide for themselves if they want this medication to end their lives. It's quite, quite radical for doctors, probably. Right. So this bill is, is really about patient autonomy then? Absolutely about patient autonomy. That Patient autonomy and reducing or eliminating unbearable suffering. It's a, it's, a, it's a bill of compassion, in my view. That's what it's about. 
Okay, let, let's look at some of the provisions of the bill specifically. The preamble says um, the bill is to enable adults who are terminally ill to be provided at their request with specified assistance to end their own life. Um, and then in clause one, subsection two, we've got, well, first of all, in subsection one, we've got the idea that the High Court has got to consent. Then the person mm -hmm. has to have a voluntary, clear, settled and informed wish to end their life. Mm -hmm. um, then they've got to, to be 18 or over and they've got to have mm -hmm. capacity um, mm. and be, be resident in yeah. England and Wales, presumably for legal reasons. But why why mm -hmm. these particular um, high court, voluntary, clear, settled, informed wish capacity? Why all these three um, safeguards? What, what's the idea behind them? I think uh, that for some people, this is a bit of a radical departure from what they're used to. And therefore, people want to be absolutely assured um, that there won't be any abuse of any kind. Um, and that is, in particular, why we say somebody must be um, have capacity to make this decision for themselves. Um, because, of course, there are countries where assisted dying is available to people, for example, with dementia. But I think for this country, that's a little bit too radical. I think people will feel much more secure knowing that if we pass this law, the patients involved must have capacity. So, and to have a, a settled opinion, I think is just very important. You know, if people are dying, they've got a horrible illness, there are bound to be moments when they think, oh my gosh, I just want this all over. But you know, you, you don't want somebody to say, oh, right, fine, here's some medication, take it. You know, no, 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 no. Um, because uh, they might regret <laughs> ending their lives when they did. Um, and, and they won't be allowed to, to tell us that. But it's an error. It, once it's made, it's an irrevocable decision. It, it, exactly. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you really do want to be sure this person really, really is finding their life unbearable over a bit of time and seriously wants to bring it to an end. And the High Court. That was introduced at the time this bill was divorced and the bill was debated those years ago. Um, and again, it's just another safeguard. I'm not sure that we need it personally. Um, and it would be a matter for Parliament whether they wanted to pull that out or keep it or whatever. But um, for me, that's not so important. I would prefer not to have that additional safeguard along with all the others. I mean, there are all sorts of safeguards that you know, the patient must be interviewed by two doctors to uh, you know, determine their uh, prognosis, the expected length of life and the rest of it. The, the uh, nearest relatives must be interviewed to make sure that they're, they're not in some way hostile and might be encouraging the person to take their own life. You know, there, there are so many safeguards. Uh, I, you know, you, you can overdo it and, and knock the thing, you know, make the thing pretty unusable. So I think that's something we will discuss in Parliament. The issue of um, capacity, um, presumably that's that's um, a concept which has been developed in, in the case in case law um, in other areas. Yeah. Oh, oh, very much so. I mean, this bill very closely allies with the bill or Act of Parliament in Oregon that, that, that has been in place for more than 20 years. How has that worked so far, the one in Oregon? Well, very, very well. There's been no abuse. Um, that the hospice movement, for example, who were against the bill before it became an act of parliament, are now supportive of it. Uh, the the um, the quality of palliative care is is I think the best in in the US 
in Oregon. So, you know, assisted dying must, in our view, go hand in hand with the best possible palliative care. And that is certainly something that has happened in Oregon. That's important and to us. And they also have the six-month six limit as well. Yep, they do. They do. It's, it's very, very similar. And it's that's, worked very well. And that's why we want to, you know, replicate it really here as closely as possible. I mean, the, the idea of a voluntary, clear, settled and informed wish, that sounds like quite a complicated legal test, potentially. I don't think it is, actually. I think if somebody says on a particular day, you know, I can't cope with this anymore. I don't, I can't, a lot of people use the term, I can't enjoy anything anymore. You know, whether it's because they've got terrible pain, but very often actually pain is not the number one issue. It can be terrible, uh, relentless nausea, feeling sick all the time and vomiting a lot, repeatedly, day after day, week after week. So, you know, there are other experiences that account for the fact that very often people say, I want to die because I no longer, I know I can no longer enjoy anything and I'm not going to be able to. Now, if they say that week after week, that's abundantly clear. It's not complicated, actually, at all. It's just a wish. I want to die. Now, on, on to the clause two, this, I, the definition of terminal illness, first of all, that they've got to have an inevitably progressive condition which cannot be reversed. And as a consequence of that terminal illness, they've got to be re reasonably expected to die within six months. Why this very, very, you, some might say, very restrictive limit on the people who may be allowed to um, use assisted dying to only people who, who have no more than six months left? Yes, it's a very interesting and important question and, and issue, I would say. Um, again, I think it's to reassure people who are concerned that there might be some sort of abuse of some sort. You know, this is very clear. Obviously, doctors may get it wrong. They may say somebody's only got six months to live and they may have longer. Um, but in response to that issue, and that's an important issue, actually, because our opponents do raise it. Oh, doctors don't know how long people are going to live. The important point about Oregon, actually, the experience of that, of that bill or the act there is that people actually take the medicine, if they do, um, in the, when their doctors would be saying, oh, they may live for another week, 10 days. They don't take the medicine sort of four, five, six months ahead of their death. So by the time people actually ask for the prescription and take the medicine, doctors really have a very clear idea when they're going to die. The six-month period is, is the period at the beginning of which people might start to think about it and start having discussions and so on. Um, but certainly it, it is a safeguard that, that I think reassures a lot of people, and therefore that's why we have it. Uh, what about, I mean, as people like um, AC Grayling have argued, um, what about people who have very, very long-term illnesses which are never going to get any better which cause them sub, uh, huge suffering but they're not expected mm -hmm. to die anytime soon because this this bill doesn't deal with that does it no it, it doesn't it is a very narrow bill it's a very conservative bill in my view um and i very well understand the uh arguments made by many many people that it should be much broader, it should apply to people who have long-term unbearable illnesses and disabilities of various sorts.
But you know that the disability lobby, uh, well, some of the people who take on the role of speaking on behalf of disabled people, even though the great majority of disabled people support this bill, but they do have a few vocal people um, who are against even this bill, and they would be passionately against anything broader where they themselves, these, these severely disabled people, we have two or three couple in the Lords who are against this bill, severely disabled, um, that, you know, they would say, well, that applies to me. You're, you're telling me my life isn't worth living. You know, so it's a very, very difficult uh, issue for severely disabled people if one thinks in terms of a much broader bill. So we keep it very narrow because then these the, the disabled people simply don't have to worry that we're somehow saying their lives are not worth living. We're not talking about them at all. We're talking about dying people. So it is very, very important in terms of getting this through Parliament. Um, it will not, um, it shouldn't affect or upset anybody and it will reduce suffering and, and eliminate suffering, obviously, at the end of the day for a small number of people who, whose suffering is intolerable, unbearable. What do you think is likely to be your biggest hurdle in getting your bill passed? Well, as a private member's bill, the biggest issue is actually time. Because, of course, private member's bills are debated on a Friday and there aren't unlimited Fridays. Uh, so what we need really is for the government to say, we accept that this bill should pass and adopt it and then have it debated you know, during other parts of the week, Monday to Thursday, not just Friday. And, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's a matter for the government, and we'll see whether we can make progress on that. In terms of opposition, active opposition, who are your greatest opponents to this bill? Um, there are one or two medics um, who oppose it in the House of Lords. Um, there are one or two disabled people who oppose it in the Lords. Are your biggest opponents then really at the end of the day, the religious lobbies? I was going to say, I missed out <laughs> the religious, the bishops. Um, they, the, the archbishop I had a conversation with, and uh, I said, but surely, archbishop, this is about the autonomy of the patient. And he just said, well, I don't know that I believe in autonomy. So I thought, oh, well, <laughs> end of conversation. Finally, um, what can listeners do or what can members of the public do if they want to show their support for this bill and, and help to ensure that it gets um, the time it needs? Please, 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 everybody, write to your MPs. That's the most important thing anybody can do. Um, I think the Lords, probably we've got a majority um, to, to support this bill. But if anybody knows a, a peer <laughs> in that area, um, do write to appear and say how very, very important it is for this bill to pass. So direct communication with parliamentarians is, would be just wonderful if anybody has the uh, energy to do that. Ali Meacher, thank you very much. Great pleasure, thank you. Anthony Grayling, welcome to the podcast. It's my pleasure. Nice to be on, Anna. 
First of all, um, so you were involved in drafting an earlier bill on assisted dying, which was introduced into the House of Lords in 2003 by Lord Joffe. Um, how similar was, was Lord Joffe's bill to Lady Meech's, um, and why do you think it failed in the first decade of the 2000s? It's rather different from uh, Baroness Meech's bill, um, m- much uh, m- more uh, extensive in its provisions than uh, Baroness Meech's bill, which is very restrictive. And uh, it fell because the uh, anxieties that people feel about permitting um, assisted dying are ones that almost any attempt to decriminalize it or, or legalize it positively uh, are going to fall foul of those kinds of objections, which is why Baroness Meech's bill is so sort of heavily uh, padded about with defenses against arguments that you know the um, right to to die could be abused by people who force people to accept you know suicide and uh, unfortunately um, every successive attempt made since lord joffrey's bill has retreated and retreated and given up more and more territory to the objectors until we now have uh, a bill baroness meech's bill which by the way i i welcome of course because anything that's done in this line is welcome. It's a step in the right direction, but it is so, uh, you know, fortified about with bureaucratic protections that uh, it it gives an extremely limited right to people to be helped if they are in absolutely unsupportable suffering, and that seems to me to be a great pity. This bill, Baroness Beach's bill, um, unlike Lord Joffe's bill. Uh, is directed at uh, you know people at the very very end of a terminal illness which is um, irremediable. It's going to end in death anyway, and so the thought is that you would just limit the amount of suffering that the person is going to undergo, and th- that is the restricted objective, of allowing this uh, shortening of suffering um, to be uh, to, to happen. But it, it doesn't take account at all of uh, something that uh, was behind Lord Joffe's uh, general approach, even though Lord Joffe's bill itself was pretty restrictive. And that is that there is uh, an aspect of autonomy, of choice uh, in um, people's lives about whether they continue with their life. So, for example, uh, the uh, great objection that was urged at that time was against uh, allowing anything that could uh, evolve into, for example, allowing a, a quadriplegic uh, a rugby player age 20, you know, who was absolutely in despair because they'd had a terrible accident on the rugby pitch and they wanted to kill themselves. And the thought was, uh, no, we shouldn't. We shouldn't allow such a person to be helped to die. And so there's, there's quite a lot of, actually, it's slightly more uh, complicated in a way. And it might be helpful to, to approach this from, from the, the following direction. Back in 1961, uh, suicide, which used to be a crime, if you tried to commit suicide and failed, you could be held criminally liable for doing it. And, and that was for religious reasons, wasn't indeed, it? Indeed, indeed. And, and in fact, of course, th- those same reasons lie behind the arguments that we're talking about now too. But um, w- w- when suicide was decriminalised, so it wasn't legalised, but it was decriminalised, what was left in place was a clause, Section 2 of the 1961 Act, which, crimin- which uh, keeps it a crime to help anybody to commit suicide. So that has been a target of debate 
ever since then. And efforts that have been made by the Voluntary Euthanasia Society and its successful organization, Dignity in Dying, and you know, my, my choice, or all this has been aimed at asserting, getting a recognition of the autonomy of the individual to make a decision about whether or not uh, they want to die. And behind the, the arguments against this, the abuse argument, is also well, sometimes what I call, anyway, the but argument. But what happens if, if the person lived on for a bit, they might change their mind and then they might find that even, you know, if they were disabled or something, they would still find a lot of value in life. So uh, we, we shouldn't allow them um, to take their own lives now uh, in, in the hope that later on they won't want to. That kind of argument. So I call that the but argument, okay? Mm -hmm. Or the second chance argument, perhaps, if you like. Yeah, or the second chance argument, indeed. Perhaps that's a better name for it. So now, the, so the, the idea uh, is that uh, somehow or other, society has an interest in what an individual seeks to do. And indeed, society does have an interest. The great question arises, where does the autonomy of the individual end and society's interest become overriding with respect to the individual's autonomy? Obviously, if an individual decided to kill some other individual, then society has an overriding power and right to stop the individual from doing it. But the question is, does society have the right to stop an individual from taking their own lives on whatever grounds? Because it's not a criminal offence to do it. Uh, and that means that, it, that functionally speaking, you have a right to do it. And so that right is recognised by the 1961 Act, in fact. And yet... Uh, the, the really odd thing is that the whole debate about assisted dying was targeted on people who want to end their lives but can't because they're paralyzed, for example. This bill, the Baroness Meters bill, doesn't address that at all. In fact, on the contrary, if you look at the details of the bill, um, where it talks about the actual uh, you know, administering of the help to uh, end a life, which is in section 4.6 of the bill, it talks about self-medication, self-administering of the of the suicide uh, um, uh, medication, and, and therefore doesn't uh, address specifically the question of somebody who is completely paralysed and unable to do it for themselves, which is, of course, the key issue with assisted dying. So there is a very strict limit in that case um, on what the the doctor can actually do to help someone. Yes, yeah, so all that this bill does is it allows the doctor to prescribe and to take to the patient the medication in question, but it doesn't give a license to administer it, to inject it, or to pour it down the individual's throat, let's say. And, and that, 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 so that misses the point about uh, the Section 2 of the 1961 Act, because implicitly it seems to leave in place the possibility that somebody could be held liable for um, you know, under the terms of the 1961 Act. And even more worryingly, uh, several sections in the Meacher Bill, um, and I can cite them, but the whole of Section 8 has this effect, so it was 3.8, 4.9, gives so much discretion to the Secretary of State of the day about the interpretation of the Act and about what at that time can be regarded as the uh, applicable code of conduct for the doctors in the case and for the patients in the case and so on, that it leaves open, wide open, the possibility that the effect of the act could be negated you know, because the Secretary of State might decide and has 
uh, discretionary power to do this, to uh, you know place further limits on how this can proceed and what the High Court must decide. But none of this addresses the great question of principle, which is the, the uh, autonomy. So now we have a, a very uh, odd situation. After the 1961 Act, it became a, no longer a criminal act to attempt or to commit suicide. Fine. So this means that you can commit suicide, okay? Now we have the medical means to make ending life easy and quick and painless. But at the moment, the situation is you can commit suicide, but nobody's going to help you to do it. So there's always the risk of a botched suicide. Uh, and you could end up in a, in a worse situation than you were in before you attempted suicide uh, if you botch it. And if you are disabled and you cannot administer a, a means of suicide, then you can't get help at all. That's the current situation of the law. You either botch it or you don't get any help at all. In fact, the most vulnerable people, the people most in need, are those who are most distressed by being unable to exercise any kind of autonomy. And they're the ones who are precisely denied at the moment. And, uh, you know, this bill, uh, Baroness Meech's bill, given the problem with the clause that I've mentioned about uh, you know, self-administering the medication doesn't address that. What happens with this this bill of uh, of Baroness Meech's is that on the one hand, it introduces, in order to try to block all the objections that are going to come from the, the the nay lobby, the religious lobby, it introduces a very very heavy bureaucratic apparatus: the High Court and two doctors and fourteen days and settled intention and. And what have you, and of course the settled intention and the um, time gap are good, and an independent, uh, you know, eye on this from uh, an independent doctor is good. All that kind of thing is good. Seems to me that getting permission from the High Court just takes makes this far too cumbersome, expensive, and time-consuming, especially given that it's meant to be a six-month window. And with the, with the High Court and then with the 14 days and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, it so closes that window as to make it kind of pointless. So in, in, in all those ways, that the, the, the bill is a very rickety edifice. And I understand why it is, because it's trying to block all the objections. But, but the, the, the objections, you know, should be countered firmly by insisting on the autonomy of, of the individual. Let's pause there and, and actually consider these. So um, as a philosopher, maybe you could start off by playing devil's advocate for a minute. Um, what are the main arguments against assisted dying that are being advocated at the moment by the religious lobby and others? That people could be persuaded by their relatives to uh, end their lives, that um, medical professionals could want to free up beds uh, in overcrowded wards, that people would be put under pressure to choose assisted dying um, for, because it suits somebody else. So that's the abuse argument. Uh, then um, th there is also the but argument or the second chance argument that if only that you know we could help them properly. We've got lovely hospice care. We've got um, medical miracles. We've got uh, you know new treatments. If only people would wait, then maybe they they could have a second chance of life or suffering would be alleviated in some other way. So there's that argument. And then you know lying right in the background of all these arguments is. 
no individual owns his or her own life. It's given by God. You have no right to take it away. You've got to put up with the condition. The sort of sanctity of life argument, I think, as you put it. Yeah. So, so those are the arguments going to, are they primarily being advocated by religious people at this stage? Uh, I, I would suspect that most of the people who are looking for arguments against assisted dying have a religious motivation, but n- not necessarily, not all, because the second chance argument and the abuse argument could be offered by anybody who was genuinely worried about those things. What it bangs up against, of course, is something that um, perhaps you and I would appreciate from, particularly from the Stoic tradition, the point that I'm going to develop about the autonomy of the individual, is that uh, the Romans, certainly in the Republican period, regarded suicide as being the ultimate act of freedom, the ultimate palliation against all kinds of ills, not just illness and pain and suffering, but against uh, uh, humiliation or defeat or or, um, being desperate about the collapse of the republic because the empire is taking over, whatever. Okay, So it was regarded as a right of an individual to decide because it is the individual's life and the individual has disposal of it. Perhaps Seneca or someone like that would have said, you know, life is a form of slavery anyway. Um, what, What then... In your opinion, is you, you said um, that um, people who are in favour of assisted dying should really, um, the bill should take a stronger approach. How would you do that? I think any, any bill should introduce very clear and strong safeguards against abuse. So it should be absolutely clear that it is the person's uh, rational, settled desire. It's not just of the moment or, or uh, out of you know despair over a divorce or something like that. So. So we do need safeguards of that kind. But once those safeguards have been met, there is no ground for restricting the kind of suffering that society is going to uh, allow people to escape and let other kinds of suffering um, be obligatory. That society says, well, tough, you've got to suffer it. You've got to suffer mental anguish. You've got to suffer despair. You've got to suffer heartbreak because we're not going to allow you to be helped to die. You can kill yourself if you like, but you take the risk of watching it, but we're not going to help you to die. And that seems that seems sort of deeply unfair and also inconsistent because if, as an act of compassion, you wanted to help somebody escape suffering, uh, then why only in the last six months of a terminal illness? Why not for somebody who simply cannot come to terms with being wheelchair-bound, let us say, or who is clinically depressed and is never, you know, going to be dependent upon medications for the rest of their lives, and so on and so on. I mean, there are all sorts of existential conditions which bring huge amounts of suffering to individuals, which is why, you know, I mean, how many tens of thousands of people commit suicide uh, every year? And what proportion of those just make things worse for everybody and for their families and, you know, and society? Because it isn't done in a clean you know, quiet, helpful, sympathetic way. From that perspective, I mean, would would the idea be then? So in, in clause um, 1.2, we have this idea that the person who is able to get help to commit suicide has a voluntary, clear, settled and informed wish to end his or own life. So would you keep that? But I mean, just say that they, they may do this for any reason that they wish. Yes, yes. So I would keep section 2A. I would I'd certainly uh, keep that. And B and see, I mean, all those things are, are very good. And I would keep the provisions where 
some independent verification that it is genuinely the person's voluntary choice. Okay, so those are the ones in section three that are suitably qualified practitioners are. So, you know, the, the, those are good because they provide safeguards. But when you get to they must be terminally ill, um, that they only have six months to live, you know, those sorts of restrictions uh, exclude so many people and so many kinds of suffering that the whole point of respecting the autonomy of people to make decisions about their lives and their death is associated with what should really be compassion on our part about the nature of suffering. We're more compassionate to our animals than we are to our fellow human beings in this respect. I mean, I know that's a very familiar thing to say, but it has the unfortunate merit of being true. The idea is that then suffering can take many forms and this should be recognised. Is one issue there, one one potential problem, um, not necessarily from, say, a humanistic or from an individualistic point of view, but from the state's point of view, is it is it almost embarrassing that um, individuals might might feel that they're suffering so much? I don't know, say say for non um, illness related reasons that that they want to commit suicide. Do you think that's that perhaps a reason why the state is unlikely to allow people to just commit suicide if if they want to under any circumstances? No, I, I don't think so. Uh, I don't think that that's a reason because, after all, people do commit suicide, you know. So, and the state doesn't uh, think, "Oh gosh, you know, well, we've really slipped up there because we should have done whatever it takes uh, to have made that person's life happier," and so on. So, no, I don't think that that's the case. Although there's an interesting um, sort of side uh, bar issue to what you've just said there, which is this: if you think about um, uh, social policy on um, assisted dying, sex work, and drugs. So if you think of those three areas of, of debate in society, we find that, that uh, repeated, repeatedly, despite the fact that majorities of people are in favor of liberalizing the drug laws and in favor of assisted dying, that, that, that politicians are incredibly afraid. It's a sort of tabloid allergy anxiety about being seen to be too liberal on those issues. Somehow our political culture just doesn't allow us to do the sensible thing like our European partners do. If you think about how they deal with those sorts of social issues, they have a much more pragmatic and open-minded approach to them. There's something in our political culture which militates against that, and it spills over into this debate about assisted dying because everybody's too nervous to be pilloried by the Daily Mail uh, on the grounds of you know, wanting to be liberal um, towards people who have a desire to die. Is there a parallel at all between um, the attitude towards assisted dying and perhaps slightly earlier um, attitudes towards abortion? I mean, which was um, which is not legal in, in some Western countries, and which um, was was perhaps uh, carried a lot of stigma until fairly recently. Yes, I think that's a very good point, and, and of course, uh, we'll have the very similar route again: religious objections to abortion. You know, people make the point, again, it's a, a, an often made it's a knee-jerk kind of point about the United States, where people who are very much against abortion are in favor of um, uh, executing criminals and, and people having guns, you know, so the kind of you know, contradictions that, that exist in those respects in attitudes towards the value of life. In the, in the abortion, and, and indeed this is a very important point, because in the d- abortion debate, the competition is between 
the um, unborn and the uh, mother. And so when questions of, of quality of life, I mean, if you think, for example, of a, a young woman who has plans and projects and she's in the middle of her studies or the early part of her career or other children already or whatever it might be, and you know, ongoing commitments of, of a variety of kinds, and then something happens which would be hugely disruptive of that and wasn't chosen by her. And so she decides to you know, put off having children or not to have this child or something. There, there's a direct com- conflict of interest between the unborn and the living adult. And it's, you know, it's a difficult choice, but, but when you weight the matter, you should surely weight it in favour of the, surely is always the weak point in any argument, isn't it? But, but there is a case for weighting it in favour of, uh, of the adult human being with current commitments and so on. Okay? Now, by, by the same token, the, the same kind of logic applies to, to the case of a person who wants to die. You know, whose life is it which is crucially at stake for the person who has to make the decision, either a decision about abortion or a decision to, to die. Whose life is crucially at stake? And what, what is the perspective from the inner uh, point of view of that individual, which is determining about the course of action that should follow? Well, we mentioned the Stoics. The Stoics just took it for granted that it was the individual himself or herself who was the sole arbiter of what that decision should be. And that, that, I think, is the point of principle that underlies the idea that uh, nobody has the right to stop somebody from taking their life if they want to. So we've acknowledged that in the 1961 Act. But now we still play dog in the manger uh, for people who want to be able to do it safely and securely in a way that can't be botched, or for people who can't do it for themselves. And we're still not allowing them to do it. So it's a very, you know inconsistent and, and paradoxical situation. Is there sort of, again, a, a fear um, of, of being perhaps inhumane by allowing people to be assisted to kill themselves, but is that leading then to a greater inhumanity of um, not allowing people who, who have made the decision to, to do it? Yes, I, I think uh, that that's right. It does lead to a greater inhumanity. You know, people tend to think, don't they, that... Um, there's life and there's death, and there's uh, you know the right thing to do, and then there's the wrong thing to do. And the dilemmas, moral dilemmas, are typically present whenever that there are two rights in competition with one another. When there are equally you know strong arguments or compelling reasons on both sides, and you are forced to make some kind of decision, there's a big argument for encouraging somebody uh, to take whatever help they can to live on. I mean, the vast majority of people don't want to die. They want to live on. And there's no reason why you shouldn't, in the face of somebody who wants to commit suicide, try to dissuade them from it on the grounds that it would hurt people who care about them or that there might be an opportunity for you know, a cure in future or something like that. But persuading, trying to persuade somebody and making it illegal are <laughs> two different things. And that's, that's what's at stake here. I mean, I guess perhaps if you, the contrary position might be that um, with other decisions, people perhaps should have more autonomy because their decisions are less um, final. Um, whereas this decision, you might might feel very strongly that you wanted to commit suicide at one point, but then perhaps a year later you might change your mind. But if you'd done it already, then it would be too late. 
um, in a way that no other decision is is so irrevocable. Is that perhaps a reason? Well, this is this is certainly the the, the most emphatically and um, invariably irrevocable. But there are lots of irre- other kinds of irrevocable decisions that people make all the time. And very, very often, you know, the, the problem in, in hospitals, the problem with people who are ill, is that it's their families who don't want them to die and who keep them alive and who persuade doctors to keep them alive and to prolong life and to prolong suffering. And we could change the culture on this by getting people to be more rational uh, and more perceptive about about suffering and about death and about the place of death in, in life, about the fact that dying is an act of living, which can be incredibly unpleasant for people who are experiencing it. And also the, the, the sorts of distress that are associated with certain kinds of conditions, either terminal or long-standing. You know, being doubly incontinent, having to be cleaned up by other people all the time and so on. The, you know, the humiliation of it and the, the awful you know, plight that people are in when that's the case. All these things need to be understood on the grounds of compassion and on the grounds of the individual's right to say whether or not they're prepared to put up with it. You see, most people, I think, when you ask people in this country and you do polling, and we see 80% and more of people think that it should be a legal entitlement to ask for help to die, not because they want to die, not because they're going to ask for help to die, but because they think if I were in a really horrendous situation, I would like to know that I could be you know, eased out of it, that people want it as a kind of backstop. And that's the real importance of it. It's an assurance. Um, Anthony, one final question. Um, now, we've, we've talked about precedents for, for sort of uh, making suicide acceptable in certain circumstances that, that go right back to classical antiquity. Um, but what about specifically in our own time in 2021 um, in the UK? Now, we've gone through a pandemic and we're still going through one. Is it time for us as a society to rethink our attitude towards death altogether? Yes, I think so. Um, we need, I, I think we do need to have a, a proper conversation and a proper re-evaluation and self-education about death because it has become a kind of reflex, a sort of trope in all advanced Western democracies to um, act and almost believe as if death doesn't exist and it can be postponed and everything to do with it like aging and illness can be treated and even cured you know a cure for aging think of that in the same way as we hope to be able to conquer cardiovascular disease and and, you know cancers and, and so forth to postpone death to hide it away when you think of the Victorian experience of death, or indeed the experience of death in any society in any period of history other than our own, it was right there. It's in the bedroom in your house. Happened often. Children died all the time. Infant mortality was very high. You witnessed your parents and your grandparents dying in your own home. Now it's all kind of sequestered away and, and it's all sanitized and it's all you know, dusted under the carpet. And as a result, We don't face up to it in our own lives either. Anthony Grayling, thank you very much. That's a pleasure. This episode was produced by the National Secular Society, all rights reserved. The views expressed by contributors do not necessarily represent those of the NSS. 
You can access the show notes and subscriber information for this and all our episodes at secularism.org.uk forward slash podcast. For feedback, comments and suggestions, please email podcast at secularism.org.uk. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a positive review wherever you can. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join us next time.